This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the falling dominoes of rebellion and demands for justice in the form of teacher strikes from one educationally decimated red state to the next. Clips today come from AJ+, The Majority Report, This Is Hell Radio, Ring of Fire Radio, Jacobin Radio, The Diane Rehm Show, and Democracy Now! You know, everybody loves your neighborhood teacher, but no one wants to pony up to pay us a salary where we can survive. Well, if teaching were easy, we wouldn't have a shortage, right? It is a symptom of the sick and fractured system of education. I think I always had it in me to become a teacher, but I never wanted teacher pay. We're underfunded, we have less resources, we're kind of expected to give up of our time. We're expected to go the, the extra mile all the time without being asked even if I can. You know, I think that it's as important to guide students through an education as it is to help someone in the hospital who's sick or uphold the law in a courtroom. There is a, um, a certain amount of demonization of teachers that goes on, knowing how hard we work and knowing what, what's actually happening in a classroom. It's hard to hear people put down your profession. In somebody's class is the next bioscientist. In somebody's class is the next discoverer. It's so important that we renegotiate what we think about teachers. I would say on a national level, there's too much politics involved in public education. Um, there's too much money tied to policies and ideas about what education should be and how education should happen. Um, there's not a lot of um, actual educators in that conversation, which I find extremely problematic. If you look at the education system, the highest need students usually have the lowest, smallest amount of resources. It is difficult, especially when you teach in communities of color um, or low-income communities. They bring a lot of trauma into the room. If you have students arriving every day and their minds are elsewhere, they don't know where they're going to sleep at night, they're cold, they're hungry, their stomachs are growling across the board, generally like they're not going to thrive. I think when you talk to teachers, the thing that we're most frustrated with in regards to our kids is the amount of testing that they have to go through. We are testing children to death, and we're testing teachers to death. Twenty years ago, we might have spent as much as two weeks testing. Today, in 2015, the average number of weeks a child spends taking tests can be up to six weeks. And it just seems like a reoccurring theme is just happening over and over again. Let's try a new test. Let's try new standards. Let's mandate them. Let's see what happens. We've been putting band-aids and we've been trying to backtrack and replace parts. Why don't we look at a way to create a more holistic education, which includes social, emotional content and curriculum? Oh, the best part? Where do I begin? Oh, 
the kids, right? The students, the young adults, it's, uh, they're the best part of the job. I wouldn't give it up for the world. It's, it's the best choice I ever made was to be a, to be an eighth grade English teacher. For every teacher, it's when you see that spark, when you see a student engage, they're doing something that they love and they're good at it and they feel confident. They feel like they found their place in the world. That's my favorite part. The teacher I worked for kind of mentored me. I know he thought that I could be a, a good teacher. But, you know, he was wrong. I'm not a good teacher. I'm a great teacher. <laughs> the person sitting in that room is teaching to our future. It's teaching to the hope of a nation. It's teaching to the, the potential of a world. Might we value that more as a society? Might we value that more? So this is super exciting. There are strikes going on as we speak in Arizona. Just play the footage of the aerial shot of the strike. Yeah, and then we'll play the other one. This was uh, in from downtown Phoenix yesterday. A lot of teachers wearing red. And that's a lot of people. It's from Casey Kuhn, a reporter in Phoenix. It's going to pan over. That's a lot of teachers. Wow. Right now, Louisiana Teachers uh, Union is polling members on a possible strike. There is, I mean, and I don't know how, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how, um, how serious this is, but there is like, I'm starting to hear like some some talk of like possibly like national strikes. I don't know if that would happen, but um, coordinated uh, action by uh, teachers across the country would be pretty cool. Um, but here are uh, teachers striking in, in, in Arizona. And this is a video that went up on the New York op-ed site, New York times op-ed site. It is by three teachers <clears throat> uh, from Arizona um, all of whom uh, have had a bit of an epiphany through their jobs. And this is what, um, I mean, this is the, the point of it. As a conservative, the word strike union, not in my vocabulary. You heard one of us, you heard all of us. Our students deserve to have a fully funded education. I did vote for Trump. I consider myself a Bible-believing Christian. I've always been a fan of fiscal conservatism. I've always voted Republican, but now I'm seeing firsthand what that gets us. The classrooms are falling apart. We have festering bathrooms. We have cockroaches. We have tattered textbooks. Teachers aren't getting the resources that they need within the classroom. In a wave of protests sweeping across the country, led by teachers who say the future of public education is at stake. Teachers, and specifically public school teachers, Uh, really aren't valued. I have to work um, 15 to 20 extra hours a week at McDonald's for minimum wage. Teaching is my calling. Um, I love teaching music to children. That's, that's who I am. And people say, Oh, if you didn't like the money, if you don't like the money, go do something else. I can't. I'm 53 years old. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. 
I know that I will have to work until the day I die. I won't be able to afford to ever be retired. Because of the way that the state has chosen to fund education for the last 15 years, it simply made it untenable for me to stay. I'm not leaving teaching, I am leaving the state um, because of these issues. I don't believe it's gonna get fixed. I just don't. We are 43rd across the nation in teacher salary. This is why we're gonna restore additional assistance. I'm not bragging on 43rd, I'm just saying we're not last. <laughs> so we're not just striking for a higher salary, we're striking for resources for our classrooms and for our students. We are at the bottom of the pile for the state. Uh, pause it. Just, I mean, could you just imagine, like, this guy, we're 43rd, we're not last. Unbelievable. This is Arizona, folks. Um, all right, we'll play just a little bit more of this. In uh, teachers walking out or striking in West Virginia, uh, in Oklahoma, and some other states successfully. And we realized that we were worse off than some of those states were, and it just grew like wildfire. Teachers are riding a growing wave of anger over deep education cuts made by Republican-led legislatures. The teacher protests have been described by some as a red state revolt. I've said I'm on the side of the teachers, and I've been listening, and we've been working. This will result in a net pay increase of 20% by the beginning of school year 2020. So on the surface, that sounds amazing. It won't help substitutes. It won't help our aides. It won't help our nurses, our front staff. It comes out of funds that go to veterans, people in our population who are disabled and on Medicaid, colleges and universities in our state. I voted for Governor Ducey, and I was really hopeful. And now, honestly, I just feel betrayed. How can you say you're pro-life and pro-family and pro-middle class? Even as a conservative, I think it's only fiscally responsible to increase a tax to fund public education. Oh my gosh, did I just say it out loud? I do. I support a tax. I will tell you this right now. If you are a Republican politician, you better get behind education. I've been on my feet for five hours, waiting on people, sweeping, mopping. I probably won't get to bed until 12.30 or 1 o'clock tonight, and then I've got to be back up at 6 or 6.30 tomorrow morning. Good night. Nuts. Nuts. I mean, you know, the thing that is sort of, um, and, and, and to be fair, the Democratic Party, as of five or six years ago, was not terribly friendly, broadly speaking, to the idea of public education. That said, their relationship with the teachers unions, obviously much stronger and, um, and much of, I think, what we would call the school reform movement has been beaten back. Um, but I just don't understand how people were under the misapprehension that Republican lawmakers ever cared about public education.
As far as shaping the way that people live, you write that the prevalence of women in the teaching sector is undergirded by a more complex issue. Teaching is seen as women's work. And uh, <clears throat> you write that, uh, that you, we should look at this as a feminist project because women, whether in paid employment or not, do the majority of the actual caregiving at home and in the community. This is reflected in how teachers are conceiving the strikes. A common theme among the strikers is that they're striking for their students. When asked why they were uh, asking for a 20% pay raise, Rebecca Gorelli, an Arizona teacher, framed it beautifully. Our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. How can the idea of women being caregivers be seen as empowering or liberating? And I'm just I'm just concerned about it being seen being potentially sexist, not coming from you. But I'm just saying, if you know, from my point of view, isn't viewing women as caregivers kind of the antithesis antithesis of feminism? Or what am I getting wrong about feminism? No, no, you're not getting that wrong about feminism at all. Yes, women should not. Care is needed for a community, family, a society to function. And women should not be the only ones responsible for it. Um, There should be a lot of money um, coming from the state to provide care in a in a public way. So uh, in the sense of, you know, good pensions, good benefits and free childcare, universal health care, Medicare for all, you know, that kind of thing are all part of the caregiving and the state should <laughs> bear a large uh, amount of responsibility for that. But beyond the state, uh, men and women should absolutely share in the care. So yes, it should never be just the task of women. The point here is <coughs> is, is um, that currently, under our current um, situation, uh, women do provide, um, women are the majority caregivers, um, and this is wrong that they have to do the majority of the care work, but since they're doing it, the least that our lawmakers and our union leaders can do is to actually recognize that. Unless you recognize that, it can't be changed. So right now there is, an um, again, a invisibilization of women's work and, and, and um, sort of there is no acknowledgement that um, women do do most of the care work um, and, you know, places in the uh, sectors in the labor market uh, that are uh, sort of considered traditionally as care work, such as nursing and and teaching. Well, traditionally is the wrong word because these didn't used to be considered women's work previously, as my article points out. But that has increasingly uh, been seen as uh, women's work. These sectors have been um, very selectively uh, uh, in, uh, underpaid, and because a vast majority of um, workers in these sectors are women, and um, and that is, I don't think that is accidental. Uh, the kind of misogynist um, arguments that have been coming from these um, governors of the state. So, for instance, West Virginia teachers were called dumb bunnies. Um, so by their governor. And so these kind of things make it very clear that 
you know, the the right recognizes that it's women's work uh, in a misogynistic way, and uh, sort of the left has failed to recognize the kind of um, the kind of pressure that women face by being the sole caregivers, both in the workplace and at home. In the context of the teacher strike, I think um, this was reflected in two ways. One, because in communities, uh, women often are sort of more active in the community and, and building sort of social ties, social relations, going to coffee meetings with their church groups and so on. So once the strike started, um, you know, a quick, a very quick network of social support was built almost immediately to support the teachers. And these were uh, these were community organizations, churches, um, social uh, groups that came out immediately because these women who were teachers were not just teachers. They were church members. They went to these coffee meetings and so on. Uh, when they were not teaching. So these groups now came out quite quickly in support of of the strike. And the care issue is very relevant because women end up being the majority caregivers. Um, Women are sort of um, uh, trained in a way um, to think in a particular way. So if, you know, I get invited to dinner, I or I get invited to a conference to speak. My first thought is, uh, what about childcare that day? Okay, so these women who've been working so closely with their uh, students, when they decided to go on strike, their first thought was, you know, from a vast majority of my students, school is more than just education. This is where they get their only hot meal of the day. This is where they interact um, with other students. So it's a social world, and it's a stable social world for many of my students who come from trauma or really, really uh, hard sort of uh, family lives, challenging family experiences. So if we go on strike, we are taking that away from our students, and we can't do that. So immediately... When these strikes have started, if you go through all of the uh, strike uh, 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 sites, you know, from West Virginia to Kentucky to Arizona, uh, women have worked um, very consciously to involve church groups to serve hot meals during the strike, has involved parents groups to, um, you know, sort of um, help with the picket lines. Sometimes in West Virginia, women strikers have carried food to the houses of the students. I mean, because it's a small state, it can be done. You know, so this was an amazing consciousness um, of uh, women who were leading the strike, but leading the strike not just in a workplace kind of way, but in a deeply social way. They were thinking of society in totality not just in the workplace. And so this is, I think, very, very significant um, that uh, women are, uh, that uh, happens, this kind of thing happens because primarily women are leading these strikes and are their main participants. 
We are teachers, we are doctors, we are cooks and engineers, letter carriers, truck drivers, conductors and cashiers. We operate machinery, we fly the big airplanes, and we help to build our unions. We got struggle in our veins. We were there in the factories, we were there in the mills, we were there in the mines, and came home to the meals. We were there on the picket lines. We raised our voices loud. It makes me proud just knowing we're there. I find it very interesting in that, you know, number one, public employees are are considered by so many uh, on the right to just be public enemy number one. And I actually hear a fair number of people that you might consider to be center-left kind of look at public employees as scans. Now, normally, there are two sets of public employees that are exempted from this loathing, and that is cops and firefighters, which is a, you know, a very traditionally white male uh, aspect of the public employee, um, you know, unions. The teachers, on the other hand, you know, that's that's actually a place where people of color, women have sort of been dominant. So in some ways, I think when I was watching these, these strikers down in West Virginia, I mean, there were plenty of men, of course. I mean, there's plenty of male teachers. But the fact was is that there were a lot of women and a lot of people of color who were a part of this strike. And it just struck me that this was happening in West Virginia. This particular group of people, they are educated. Um, but they're also very culturally identified. You could hear these people, they were all sort of, you know, I've lived in West Virginia my whole life, you know. I mean, these mm-hmm. were not people who were, like, you know, coming in from out of state. These were locals. And it was that same kind of sense I got, that weird little, you know, the hair on the back of my neck standing up and just going, you know what, there's something happening on a local level around this country of people who are just, you know, they are resisting, rebelling in this case. I mean, really rebelling. And they won. And they won because they stuck together. They pushed it as hard as they could. They did not, you know, and they were very reasonable. There was no violence. There was no ugliness about it. It was a strike, but it was, you know, very, very civil in the way that they handled it. And uh, and they won. And it's like I'm watching this going, wow, I can't believe it. You know, West Virginia it just gives you a little bit of hope. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you're right here. There's there's almost like two there's two parallel stories going on uh, with 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 this. One is is that we have seen, and you could probably peg it to the Chicago teachers uh, strike. Uh, I think it was back in 2011, um, which uh, was a very successful strike, and uh, that led to um, increased. Uh, what they call social movement unionism as opposed to managerial uh, um, uh, right. uh, unionism. And uh, you saw in, in Massachusetts, uh, Barbara Maldioni became the um, the head of the, the state uh, teachers union there, and they uh, fought off successfully uh, attempts to uh, privatize education via, via charters uh, or expanded charters in Massachusetts. Um, on one hand, you can see this as a... Um, is part of that story. And, and on the other side of that story, we should also say that, um, this week, uh, teachers in Oklahoma and teachers in Arizona have, mm-hmm. uh, cited what's going on in West Virginia as, uh, an inspiration to perhaps go on their own walkouts, 
in Pittsburgh, very close to uh, West Virginia and not, you know, uh, within a couple hours, same media market. Uh, you saw public sector workers there able to renegotiate their contract. Because people were afraid of uh, of what was happening in West Virginia would uh, would be uh, contagious in some respects. So you see this uh, union story that is also again driven by uh, women. You know, you see uh, the, the the you know teachers and and nurses. Frankly, have been uh, some of the most active unions uh, over the past several years. Uh, they also are pushing this social movement unionism because they are uh, more attached in many respects to the community because of the nature of their jobs. And and so we saw these teachers there. They're negotiating on behalf of the other public sector workers, but they're also out there talking about fracking. They're talking about yep. uh, health issues for members of the community. Uh, they also they were serving food to kids, a lot of whom only get their free meals from schools. Um, they were doing daycare, conscious of 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 the implications of their strike on essentially their clients. And then the other one, as you raise, is we are living in an era of unprecedented activism by women and maybe not unprecedented, but a, a renewed, uh, let's put it uh, that way, renewed activism by women to the extent we can measure major changes in what's going on politically. And we're still, you know, a little bit uh, out and some of these things aren't as clear, but it is uh, we're watching uh, women, uh, particularly uh, educated women um, who are engaging in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Would you choose to go back working 12 hours a day? Would you choose to toil more and a pittance be paid? Would you stand with the union against the new right? Or do you think on your own you can withstand their might? The answer is written in our history. If it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights. But our union's as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me. So stand up and stand by our union. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. And I'm speaking with Rachel Cohen and Sean Richmond, and we're talking about the strikes in West Virginia, the looming strike in Oklahoma, and now we're moving into the Janus case that is before the Supreme Court and will probably be decided in June, but arguments are being heard now. And I'm going to ask uh, you two to both explain it more fully, but everyone is pessimistic that it will end in any other way than public sector unions getting defunded. Some say that the right is doing this in order to defund the Democratic Party, but as both Rachel and Sean have written that there's unintended consequences. So maybe we could just lay out what that case is, what its ramifications are, and then go into the unintended consequences. And you bounce off each other, so I'm going to let you both do that now. Perhaps maybe, Sean, since you wrote the article in the Washington Post, you should start. Actually, Rachel, why don't you okay. talk about the operating engineers and the crazy stuff they're doing? I heard a story. I mean, basically, so the case, which Mark Janus is saying, you know, it's a violation of his free speech rights to have to pay union agency fees, even though those are not going towards the union's political lobbying work, because the distinction is not meaningful and, and you can't compel that kind of money, that kind of speech. So that's that's what the case is about. And while 
basically the whole narrative thus far, the commentary has been about how this is going to really decimate Democratic coffers. We're going to see what happened in Wisconsin happened all over the country, and it's going to just severely weaken the public sector unions. The International Engineering Union, which has chapters in different states, but they came up with an idea and they said, you know, I don't think that the plaintiffs are thinking this through enough because there's two sides to the, that coin and there's two sides to that argument. And if Mark Janus says that that paying union dues is a restriction on his free speech rights, then there's a lot of different angles you can go with that from the flip side. You could say that a state restricting what people can bargain over is a restriction on their free speech rights. Or you could say that requiring a state to have to cover union representational services for someone who is out there trying to, who doesn't support them or is out there trying to destroy their work is a violation of their constitutional rights. Basically, the idea being that for the past 40 years, the Supreme Court has drawn a distinction between the speech of political lobbying and, and advocacy versus versus collective bargaining activities. And Mark Janis is trying to say that distinction is not meaningful. We should collapse that distinction. But the argument put forth by this engineering union is saying, if you collapse that distinction, you're going to collapse possibly a lot more with it. And you're going to open the floodgates to all sorts of challenges. And we're already starting. And they already filed three lawsuits, two in Illinois, one in Wisconsin, one challenging Scott Walker's infamous law that he signed in 2011 that is responsible for basically depleting public sector unions in his state. And Sean can take it from there. But I think, you know, when I heard about this, and I had already written a piece about Janice and I've been covering, I've been following all the coverage since Friedrichs. And it's true, very few people, with the exception of Sean, really were running with that threat of it. What are the unintended consequences of collapsing that distinction between collective bargaining and, and political activities. And Sean, when you go into this discussing what this case is really about, could you maybe as well let our listeners know how this differs from the Friedrichs case? It doesn't. <laughs> well, that was easy. Of it. Okay. It's a complete replay of it. Look, I mean, what's outrageous about this is that Justice Samuel Alito, this is his theory, he has actively inserted this into cases that it has nothing to do with. And he's been basically soliciting for the vast right-wing conspiracy to bring this argument to the court for years now. He tried to get it into Harris v. Quinn in, I guess that's going back to 2014. He didn't have enough votes at the time. Friedrichs came along very shortly thereafter. And for Alito to get his way, for him to make agency fees completely illegal and unconstitutional, the court has to say, basically, that every interaction that a union has with the government is inherently political, and therefore, by compelling people to pay fees to their union, it is the government compelling those people's speech by participating in an inherently political organization, even when the union is bargaining over who gets to have Tuesdays and Wednesdays off at the Department of Sanitation. That somehow is a political debate. And so it's so extreme and it's so ridiculous, but this is the panicked right wing trying to grab as much power as they can as they are increasingly losing votes and losing power, right? And right. so it's, it's totally about bankrupting the unions and knocking out the Democrats, get out the vote operation. But if they adopt that reasoning, there's a lot of chaos that can be created. 
What I love about what the operating engineers are doing is that I'm just a writer. All I can do is, is write and say, like, hey, you know, this is, who knows what's going to happen. They're just doing it. And so it becomes a lot more real. And I think part of what they're hoping to do and what I'm hoping to do is, is that rather than this being a dry sort of throwaway reference in a legal brief in the case, that folks can point to a body of activists who are saying, like, no, bring it on. It's, That's it's what I was just going to say, those exact it's words. Time. Right, but let me just, you know, come in there, because there's also, like, a lot of disputes. I'm reading a lot of articles where people are arguing with each other over whether or not a negative outcome for unions in the Janus case is necessarily a bad thing and other things. Yeah, it's going to be really bad. But you bring out some silver linings and you both just talked about free speech because if, I mean, well, let me ask, does this mean that everything's going to be settled now or rather brought to the courts to discuss whether free speech rights have been violated? It's a constitutionally protected, your right to free speech. How do you see this? Let's talk about those consequences. We owe it to ourselves to turn every workplace to into a constitutional crisis. <laughs> Look, this is bad. If we lose Janus, it is bad. Uh, just unequivocally, it's going to be bad. We're going yeah. to lose a lot of union members. Unions are going to lose a lot of power on the front end. And so what is our revenge? Our revenge should be turn this into chaos, make them grapple with the implications and, and, and play out the thread of the argument that they made. And the pushback that I get more often on, on what I'm saying from people who, who understand what they're talking about is, look, these guys are craven. A 5-4 majority that, that goes with Justice Alito on this doesn't really give a crap about appearing to be reasonable or thoughtful or, or ideologically consistent, which is true. But the reason they're doing this is that they are panicked that they are going to lose their majority, which means we're going to have more federal circuit courts and eventually a Supreme Court that could be convinced of our arguments. And in the meantime, let's make those arguments. And let's, let's also play out the thread of what the attorney for AFSCME said in the hearings, that agency fee is traded for the no-strike clause in bargaining, particularly in private sector bargaining. You want to knock out one component of the very foundation of what has been a fairly stable labor relations system in this country, then you deserve the chaos that you're inviting. So in other yeah. words, it will and bring back I, the strike. Go ahead, Rachel. The other, the other thing is that going with what Sean said about the Supreme Court being nervous, and that's why they're rushing it, like, people forget how unusual it is that a Supreme Court would take a nearly identical case two years apart. They used, two you know, with abortion, Nothing. with the abortion issue, it was 1992, 2007, 2016. Like, the Supreme Court very rarely wants to adjudicate on the same kind of issue for a long time, but then in, with Friedrichs, they didn't end up doing it, so there was, you know, more of a reason. But I think, like, there's a reason to think that regardless of what happens with Janus, you're going to have a pretty long time of just kind of chaos in the lower courts, like we see with reproductive rights all over the country. You know, there's tons of court challenges and federal cases and different laws, different states doing different things, and very rarely does it make it up to the Supreme Court because they hear so few things. And eventually it will, but we don't know what the composition of the court will be like that. But the point is just like, in the way that right now things are just absolutely crazy around abortion all across the country, and they have been for years, like, you can picture something more similar to that with labor if that's the direction labor decides to go. That's how I think about it. 
Well, let's go into a little bit of the history because, Sean, in your article, you bring out what it was like before the NLRA and the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Act and the Wagner Act that gave people the right to strike and the right to union protection. If we go back to the days of a really militant labor movement, not saying that this will bring it about, but it will bring about the conditions that you'll get strikes and strikes, you know, bring about solidarity as we're seeing and all kinds of acts that people engage in that they didn't think they were capable of before acting in unison. So maybe you could bring out some of what happened before and whether you think we're on the cusp of something like that again. So I used to work for the Hotel Employees Union in New York, and so I sort of love their history and actually wrote my master's thesis on it. (laughs) There's this famous IWW strike in 1911 Mm -hmm. in the fancy dining rooms of the hotels of New York. It's an industry-wide strike, and it falls apart when this one organizer basically threatens to poison the rich of the city if they don't recognize the union. Uh, So that strike fails. And the workers like the whole wobbly model, but they're like, you know, maybe we're not going to be wobbly because we don't need to have our organizers threatening murder and losing us middle-class support. So they become That's an organization the industrial called, workers of the world. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so they become a union called the Amalgamated Food Workers. Mm-hmm. And they were an independent union modeled on Sidney Hillman's Amalgamated Clothing Workers. They were probably the main union for the hotel industry from that time, from 1912 until into the 1930s. And they were competing with the official American Federation of Labor Union, uh, the hotel and restaurant employees, but they were also competing with the, you know, the building service employees union thought that they should represent the janitors, the electricians thought they should represent the electricians. And at some point along the line, there was a split within the amalgamated food workers, and there was a communist union called the Industrial Union of Hotel Workers that formed up. And so between 1912 and 1934, there was an industry-wide strike in 1912, there was one in 1918, there was one in 1923, there was one in 1934, on the shop floor and become the dominant union. I mean, this is, a, this is a crazy dynamic. Every now and then, the official hotel and restaurant employees unions at the time, which particularly after Prohibition had a bit of a problem with the mafia, would swoop in and would sign an exclusive contract with the bosses at some cafeterias, and they would win. And so this fiercely sort of cutthroat competitive structure, and there was no labor peace for the hotels. And it was really only after the National Labor Relations Act gets passed, and even though it didn't even apply to hotels at the time, because it was based on interstate commerce and hotels weren't considered to be interstate commerce until the civil rights era, the employers wanted labor peace like a lot of the other industries were getting. They also had like a giant World's Fair that was getting organized in 1939, and they just did not want to strike in 1939. And so they basically begged the unions to merge And they said, if you guys can become one union, we will recognize you and we will sign an industry-wide contract with you that applies to all the hotels that are a part of our association because we just need to know that for at least the two years that this World's Fair is happening, that there's not going to be a strike, there's not going to be any job actions. In a microcosm, that is a lot of what happened across industry in general, that where unions finally established a degree of recognition and settlements with employers that were lasting, the employers preferred to deal with just one union because they wanted a guarantee that for the terms of their contract, 
And these were one- or two-year contracts at the time, uh, eventually sort of becoming five-year deals and longer. They just wanted to know, we're done, that whatever issues you brought to the table, however they were settled, we're done with this. For the next three years, you're going to file a grievance if you disagree. You're not going to go on strike. And that is the framework that has brought a tremendous degree of stability to American workplaces for a number of decades until the employers started to tear it apart in the 1970s. You say you don't need the union, son. You can do it all yourself. You will sign the boss's contract and the union can go to hell. You say they'll treat you fair and honest. The bad old days are a closed book. Well, if you really believe that, son, you're more stupid than you look. Bad old ways, bad old days, one begets the other. The struggles of the past of the working class, you had to stick together. That our unity was our only key to unlock poverty's chains. While divide and rule was the boss's tool, and son, that has not changed. So given that these are the consequences of budget cutting and tax cuts that has reduced that have reduced revenue what broader ramifications do you see developing politically around these uh, teacher protests is it going beyond uh, questions of school funding to raise issues about the wisdom of massive tax cutting and and budget cutting Yes, I think it is going beyond. And what we're seeing in Arizona is that the teachers have asked not only for a raise for themselves and for support staff and not only for new funding for education for children, but they have said no new tax cuts. So that's a a very big um, demand, especially in a state like Arizona, where politicians have kind of raced to be the ones offering tax relief. So we'll see how that um, changes, maybe even potentially some midterm races. I mean, my colleague Alexander Burns and I here at the New York Times have written about how some Republicans are starting to move to the center on taxes and say we need to have space in the Republican Party for, you know, sensible policies that would allow us to fund our schools and keep pace with inflation at the very least when funding our schools. Um, Certainly, I'd say that's still a minority of Republicans in these states. The majority of Republicans in these states remain, I think, very committed to the idea that you just want to reduce government size at all costs and continue to cut taxes. You quote uh, Gary Jones, a former uh, chairman of the Republican Party in Oklahoma and a candidate for governor uh, in Oklahoma, Republican candidate for governor, who is himself questioning the wisdom of all these all this tax cutting that has taken place. Exactly. And he's an example of the type of Republican who's maybe introducing a new way to talk about it. And I mean, this is not historically new. It's just new maybe since the Tea Party revolt of the year 2010 or so. Now, another issue that you mentioned that I find interesting is the connection with the charter school movement and uh, private uh, privatization uh, of schools. You you write that this has actually hurt school enrollment and therefore indirectly hurt school funding. Right. So in Arizona, which has really been a wild west for charter schools and for vouchers that allow parents to use tax money to send their kids to private schools, um, you know, some districts and schools have seen a loss of students to these other options. Now, when uh, you have fewer students, you have less money in your school, and that 
may be okay in some regards because you have less money to spend on kids that you don't have. But there are some costs that remain the same, even if your student population goes down, say the cost of maintaining the building. So this is something that teachers are anxious about. And I've talked to, you know, traditional public school teachers in Arizona who say these charter schools and private schools are marketing themselves so heavily to parents. You know, we're doing a great job here at our public school, but parents have gotten the message that public schools are failing and so they're not enrolling their kids. So, Dana, what's the history here of teacher activism? I mean, teachers, uh, as you pointed out, teachers have always been very, I think it's fair to say, very idealistic about their profession, their reasons for choosing their profession. But you've also written that the teachers have uh, quite a history of activism when when they feel that their interests uh, are threatened. That's right. I mean, the teacher union movement launched in 1897 in Chicago, and a a big issue that motivated female teachers at that time to organize as a union was low corporate tax rates. Uh, The schools were just being starved while uh, big companies at the time were paying very low taxes, especially property taxes at that time. So this is a thread that runs through American history. It is not new, and it's very interesting for me, having traced the history back to the late 19th century, to to see this happening in 2018. I'll tell you, it is not the story that I expected to be covering this year. And a lot of these teachers are women, of course. And I think you're right that the uh, teacher union movement was largely uh, directed, uh, founded by women. Yes, it was founded solely by women, and it was an explicitly feminist uh, suffragist movement in the late 19th century. I think in the mid-20th century, the most famous union leader was Albert Schenker uh, in New York City, and yeah. so that gave the teacher union movement a male face for a time uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But now, again, I mean, I think there's, because there's so much other feminist activism going on right now with the Me Too movement, um, people are talking about how, you know, this is a female profession. We do see that 75% of American teachers remain women to this day. Um, back when the teacher movement got started, teachers were very, uh, because it was largely a a female profession, almost entirely, the teachers were very uh, poorly paid uh, back at the beginning. Right, that's right. Of course, over the long course of history, teacher pay has improved exponentially. I mean, teachers used to be paid akin to, say, like a housemaid in the 19th century. You know, because of collective bargaining and the big strides that were made in the 60s and 70s with many teacher strikes during that period, you know, the expectation came that, look, teaching was a middle class or an upper middle class profession. It requires a college degree, often a master's degree, and it should be paid accordingly. That said, If you look at teachers compared to other similarly educated workers, teachers are still far underpaid. So what do you see as being the uh, political implications of this, given that we are having midterm elections coming up? I'm sure that most of these uh, most of the debate must be around governor uh, races or state legislature races. Do you see it spreading uh, beyond to congressional races, for example? Yeah, so my colleague Alexander Burns and I have looked at this. We think there's only about a half dozen congressional races that could be impacted by this, but we do really think that we will see um, this teacher movement impacting state legislators and governor races. I mean, really, this is a very big challenge for the Republican Party, given how sympathetic parents are to teachers and to the idea that their own children's schools should have more money to spend. I was out in Arizona with parents that were protesting alongside their children's teachers, and I did not know what to expect. I started going down the line of parents, typically mothers, 
asking them, you know, how they were planning to vote, who they typically voted for. And three, four women I talked to in a row in suburban Phoenix told me that they were Republicans that were considering voting Democratic this year. So this could have a big impact. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, you know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow. But, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not completely irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not, you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the U.S., Canada, or U.K. stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, five ways to support teachers striking around the U.S. It is so rare that we get to revel in good news these days and the domino effect of the successful teacher strikes around the country for better pay and state education funding are certainly something to smile about. But besides cheering quietly to yourself every time you read about another victory for teachers in education, you can also help support and ensure their progress in tangible ways at the same time. We've compiled five effective ways you can help support teachers across the country and in your own state. Number one, Call Congress. Whether you're in a striking state or not, call your members of Congress to show your support of the striking teachers. Demand your state fund the education system and keep teacher pay up to modern standards. Number two, march with teachers. Whether you're a parent or just a citizen concerned about the next generation, if you're in a state where teachers are striking, grab some friends or your family and go march with the teachers to show your solidarity. Number three, help with child care. Teachers obviously don't want to hurt families, but the reality is that teacher strikes can leave working parents in a bind when it comes to childcare. To help mitigate this, teachers in Arizona, for instance, are organizing to watch children of parents who can't take time off work to stay home with them. If you can support this effort or can set up a rotating child watch system in your neighborhood or community, that helps everyone while supporting teachers. Number four, explain the strikes to your kids. Talk to your children about why teachers are striking. Most kids have no idea what their teachers sacrifice for them and their education. This movement is about their future, so if possible, take them to a rally so they can show their support too. And number five, donate to teacher strike funds. Some of these strikes are going to go on for a long time. Teachers need resources now to win the battle to have resources when they are back at work. We've included links to the official strike funds in the show notes. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if supporting the movement to ensure the education of the next generation is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about these five ways to support teachers striking around the U.S. via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Corey Robin recently wrote on Facebook, in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Arizona, we're seeing the real resistance, the most profound and deepest attack on the basic assumptions of the contemporary governing order. These are the rule midterms to be—these are the real midterms to be watching, the places where all the rules and expectations we've come to live under, not just since Trump's election, but since forever, are being completely scrambled and overturned. Um, <clears throat> Professor Corey Robin, can you talk more about these teacher rebellions? I mean, you had the stoppage in Kentucky, you had West Virginia, and they won. Uh, you have now, um, you have now uh, Oklahoma, and then Arizona. We're talking about Trump land here. I think it's really important uh, for a couple of reasons. Beyond the specific issues of teacher pay and the classrooms and, and quality of public education, which is in such a parlous state, um, what these teachers are really uh, doing is raising the question about the low taxes, low public services uh, politics that we have been living with in this country for a very long time. Um, I just want to bring us back to, for a historical analogy, if we went back to 1978, and this is why the midterm question is important, um, if you had looked at the midterm elections in 1978, you would have seen that the Democrats were still firmly in control of the House of Representatives and the House and the Senate <laughs> and in, in control of many state legislatures across the country, you would have had very little inkling, just looking at the midterms, of the very profound right-wing counter-revolution that was coming in two years in the, the election 1980. If, however, you had looked at what happened in California with Proposition 13, which was a which was a public ballot initiative that basically made it very difficult uh, to raise taxes anymore. There you would have seen the future of American politics for the next half century. Likewise, today, I think if you're looking at what's happening in Oklahoma, really, as you said, in the heart of Trump country, these teachers are saying um are saying something that is such a challenge to the Republican Party about taxes and spending, but also to the Democratic Party. I think it's very important. Democrats have been terrified of being tagged as the tax and spend party really since Walter Mondale. And what are these? And the only times Democrats are willing to raise taxes is to deal with the deficit or the debt. What are these teachers are saying? They're saying raise the capital gains tax, not to cut the debt or the deficit, not to be good government people, but instead to deliver vital public and so services that the 
public needs and wants. And I think that's the real challenge I mean, that they're posing. I mean, this is such an astounding story that's happening in Oklahoma. You have schools that are only operating four days a week because they don't have enough money for the fifth day. And the teachers don't have enough money to teach for the fifth day because they need second and third jobs. We had a teacher who was taught, what, for 20 years, and so had her husband. And her husband, on his day off, he sells his own blood products. It's, I mean, it's horrible. But in a way, it's just a very extreme version, I think, of what happens in a lot of states. I mean, I teach at the City University of New York. It used to be one of the crown jewels of the city and of the state. It has also been systematically been underfunded and defunded by both Republicans and Democrats alike. This is a national problem. What's so amazing is that it's being confronted in the place where you would think there would be the most support for it. And not only are they doing You're talking this, about Governor Cuomo, Democratic Governor yes, Cuomo Democratic here in New York. And going way back to his father as well, uh, defunded CUNY. Um, but Mario Cuomo. But in Oklahoma, you know, these teachers are, are doing this and, 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 and they've got, it's amazing to me is that they've got overwhelming public support with what they're doing. Well, has there been any precedent? Is there any precedent for this number of, of teacher strikes or even pl public sector workers in general in the U.S.? I think there, oh, there definitely has. I mean, public sector workers have really been in the forefront for the last right. 50 years of, of leading strikes in the 1970s, particularly women and people of color were in, in the vanguard of a lot of these efforts in organizing public sector workers. And in fact, uh, one of the reasons you could say that the Republican right has been so pushing so hard on this Janus decision, which would basically make it very hard for public sector unions, the Supreme Court decision, is precisely because they feel like that's the last bastion of unionized workers, uh, and they are workers that tend to be, rest, compared to the rest of the workforce, uh, overwhelmingly and women. And this is why judges are so important right now. And as you have Mitch McConnell saying, the fight should be in the Senate. We're going to lose the House, he yes. said, apparently, this weekend, according to The Washington Post, that the fight is around the judiciary, and they are packing these courts. Yeah. I mean, they do take this extremely seriously for anyone who thinks that uh, President Trump isn't getting anything accomplished. I mean, this has been very clear from the early part of the Trump administration. They were bung they bungled so many other things. Uh, but the one thing that from the get go they knew how to do was to get the courts, uh, the, the judges appointed. In fact, he's been appointing judges at a faster rate than Barack Obama did, I think faster than George W. Bush did. Um, but that tells you something, though, I think not about the strength of the conservative movement and the Republican Party, but about its weakness. McConnell is very clear about this. If we can just hold on to the Senate, we can have a lock on the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but the courts for 30 to 40 years. And remember, the judges they appoint, these are people who are, you know, in their 50s and their 40s who will be with us for a very, very long time. I mean, you have this uh, judicial nominee, Vitter, Wendy Vitter, yes. um, who worked for the Arch Archdiocese in Louisiana, who, when confronted by Senator Blumenthal yesterday about whether she supports this landmark Supreme Court decision, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, challenging desegregation, she demurred. She said she wouldn't say. Yes. Well, this is their, this is the big strategy. All the conservative justices and nominees have been pioneering, really going back to Judge Bork uh, in the 1980s, which is 
say nothing, uh, make no statements whatsoever about your points of view. And you can present yourself as if you're, you know, remember Clarence Thomas said he had no opinion whatsoever on Roe v. Wade. He had never, he claimed he had never even had a conversation about Roe v. Wade, even though he was in law school when Roe v. Wade was decided. Uh, so this is a longstanding strategy to say nothing about what your opinions are and get you, get you in that way. And you have Stephen Reinhart now, who has just died, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a huge deal, um, was the last of President and Jimmy, Jimmy Carter's uh, federal judicial appointees, Trump can now remake the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, I mean, and this is and this is really the goal. I mean, it's it's been really astonishing again, given the dysfunction and the disorganization that we've seen throughout uh, this administration, their inability to pursue things on so many fronts. Uh, but when it comes to this, uh, this is something that they've been very focused on, you know, almost maniacally so. Well, can you talk about, Corey, uh, the rise of someone like Bernie Sanders and all the movements, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement, Black Lives Matter, in the context of what you were saying earlier, that these strikes are, are geared towards mm. not just Republicans, are opposed not just to Republican policies, but also Democrat policies? Yeah. So, you know, the as I've said, the conservative party, uh, the conservative movement in the Republican Party is quite weak, I think. And in part, the reason why it's so weak is because conservatism, you know, as a historical project, really was overwhelmingly successful. The fundamental target of conservatism, number one, was the labor movement. And compared to what the heyday of American labor completely succeeded in destroying it. And the second target was the black freedom struggle. And they were very successful in, de in destroying that struggle as well. So the conservatism, I think we have to realize, has been very successful. Um, and what you're seeing now, I think, on the left... Uh, in, in both Occupy, Bernie Sanders, the teacher strikes, Black Lives Matters, is a growing confrontation within the left, a growing reckoning of how successful, in fact, conservatism has been and how feckless and ineffective the Democratic Party and traditional liberalism has been in opposing this. And I think Frankly, the real story in American politics right now is not so much what's happening with the Republican Party and the conservative movement, which, as I've said, is by any historical measure uh, quite weak and incoherent precisely because it was so victorious over the last several decades. I think the real story, the real question is, is there going to be a force on the left, not just movements in the street, but an organized force that's able to tip this house of cards over? So talk about that further. Um, what exactly you mean, where you feel the Democratic Party is failing right now? Well, I mean, first of all, you could just look at the numbers. I mean, Bernie Sanders pointed this out in Mississippi the other day and got actually attacked for it. But the fact of the matter is, over the last 10 years, the Democrats have lost nearly a thousand legislative seats. That's, the, I think, the highest proportion of seats lost uh, under a Democratic, a two-term Democratic president since at least maybe Dwight David Eisenhower. I mean, it's uh, you, you oftentimes lose seats, but the proportions were just tremendous. And the Democratic Party as a whole um, is really a kind of gutted machine. I mean, the, the mere fact, I might say, that Bernie Sanders was able to get as far as he did in those primaries tells you how weak and sort of uh, structuralist and rudderless the Democratic Party is. Um, but I think the real question is, on the left, do you have an, an ideology, a theory, a kind of set of accounts similar, frankly, to what Ronald Reagan did in 1980 or FDR did in 1932? These are these two great realignment presidents. Great, not in the sense that I support uh, Reagan, but, you know, powerful. Um, and what they did was articulate a really profound, 
completely countervailing set of ideas and institutions, and we're able to shatter the existing dispensation. I think that's the question that we're, that's on the table and that Bernie is sort of slowly pushing towards. We've just heard clips today, starting with a video from AJ Plus with teachers explaining what's wrong with education in the U.S. The Majority Report played a video featuring conservatives who've had an awakening about the need for unions, strikes, and taxes. This is Hell spoke about the importance of recognizing these teachers' strikes as fundamentally women's strikes. Ring of Fire Radio also talked about some of the unique aspects of these strikes that come from them being led by women. Jacobin Radio discussed the looming Janus decision from the Supreme Court and gave some thoughts about the path forward for organizing labor in its wake. The Diane Rehm Show took a look at the hollowing out of our tax system as the root of all of these systemic underfunding problems. Our activism is in support of a variety of actions you can take to support these teachers' strikes. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! speaking with Corey Robin about the teachers' resistance appearing in opposition to both the gutting policies of the Republicans and the feckless Democrats' inability to respond to decades of conservative dismantling. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Whitney. I'm in Seattle and um, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. I just heard your Bhutan episode and had thoughts about regulations or lack thereof. I think we need to be careful to not automatically assume that our foibles are due to our humanity and not other aspects of our cultural values. The truth is, we don't know. White folks like us have often been quick to say what others should do when historically we're the ones who tend to have the least long-term wisdom in regards to that question, unless we've discovered it only after making an extreme royal mess of things. I don't know much about Buddhism, but I imagine that if the analogy of the child is a reasonable one, then perhaps tactics that work with children would also be effective here. In my experience, one does not need to ban a thing necessarily to get a child to stop doing something harmful. One merely needs to redirect them or explain it to them. It sounds like Bhutan has strong cultural values and that associating relevant values with practical applications that maintain their environment may be sufficient without regulation. In general, white folk need regulation in order to not destroy things. I don't think that this is necessarily a human trait, or if it is just the trait of humans who have been exploiting others and the environment so long that they don't know how to tap into values to do otherwise. Anyway, thanks for your podcast. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. I just listened to the uh, little episode you had in the rebuttal about gun control. A couple things are on my mind. I often have to have this gun conversation with some of my students. And what kills me is that I grew up in a rougher part of Cleveland, like the inner city. And to this day, I'll go anywhere in any city, in any town, and I have, and walked around freely. Now, obviously, I'm not inviting crime. I don't dress flashy, show a lot of expensive things. But the point is, 
in this day and age in America, if I have to have a gun in order to feel safe, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just not free. These people who feel the need to have a gun to protect themselves, I know this is going to be a polarizing statement, but it's an illness of paranoia. They are so convinced that something bad is going to happen to them, they probably should get some kind of counseling. Now, the other thing. Too many of my students also talk about the Second Amendment and uh, its historical context about you know, fighting an army, you know, or we're fighting back against the government. These same people cry that they're coming to take my guns, they're coming to take my guns. And I just, I asked them, I said, if the government got tyrannical, what are you going to do to them? And they said, oh, well, we'll fight back with your, you know, with our guns. I'm like, okay, well, if they come for your guns, isn't that tyranny? You already have the guns to fight with, so what the hell is your goddamn problem? Jay, you did a great show, and I got to tell you, I think you have a lot more patience than I do when dealing with that topic. Now, full disclosure, I do own guns. I grew up with guns. I don't feel the need ever to have an assault rifle. I don't feel the need ever to have any kind of high capacity. And quite frankly, I mean, I like shooting guns at target ranges. And I have a 357. And like my family always told me growing up with guns, Colin, if you ever need more than six shots, you have no business owning a gun. Jay, thanks, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And just a quick response to the first message we heard today, Whitney, who was talking about the dynamics of public policy and culture. And I don't have a counterpoint exactly. That's that's not what I'm trying to do. I absolutely appreciate what she's saying about how one policy can't necessarily be copied and pasted from one place to another. And, and the interplay of policy and, and culture should not be underestimated. I completely agree. I do tend to think that public policy is an enormously powerful way of helping mold culture. So uh, I, I think that they go hand in hand. I think you need to recognize a culture that exists before you implement a policy and also have an eye on what culture you want to create uh, with that policy and, and try to create the through line from one to the other. The other thing I, I want to point out, though, is that it's even more complicated than that with a country like Bhutan, some, something that America uh, never has to deal with or even think about, is that a, a country as small as Bhutan, surrounded by enormously large countries, I mean, they're only bordered by two countries, India and China. So they, they have these massive, massive, uh, incredibly powerful neighbors. And so something that never occurred to me until I got there and started hearing these stories, is that the influence that is felt by those countries should not be underestimated. So yes, Bhutan is a, a democratic country, they have borders, they control their own affairs, but it's, you know, you don't have to stretch your mind too far to understand how 
the neighboring countries could economically influence what's going on inside a country like that. So once you start driving around Bhutan, what you'll see on the main highways often is these really clever road signs a lot of the time. And so we started noticing them right away. They have all these funny sayings on them that encourage you to not speed and not do drugs and not smoke. And uh, it's just a whole variety of sort of public interest, uh, be safe while driving kinds of signs. And they're all put up by the Border Roads Organization, or BRO. And so we assumed that this was a Bhutanese organization. But if you Google Bro Signs Bhutan and find pictures of these signs, what you'll actually come up with most is signs in India and maybe also Nepal, because it's actually an Indian organization that puts up all those signs. So we figured that out and began hearing the stories of how actually the roads in Bhutan are primarily built and maintained by an Indian organization. So you start to get this sense that, oh, uh, there's some sort of deeper relationship going on here. And it's presented as like, India has just agreed to do this. But of course, it has geopolitical impacts that they want to be friends with Bhutan and they they want the, uh, the the Bhutanese to have a very favorable relationship with India rather than with China. And so they're sort of this pawn in this geopolitics chess game going on. And then it gets even deeper because, you know, you can understand as like, say, like a politician of a small country like that, you could get frustrated having these sorts of policies that are offered by these larger countries and they seem like a good deal, but they probably have strings attached and, you know, whether or not we really have control over our own sovereignty or not starts coming into question. And so a politician recently uh, started talking about how, you know, hey, these these contracts we have with India, they're a little onerous. And I think we need to break these contracts and start to diversify. Basically, we need to start working with other neighbors, other countries who would be willing to work with us, provide some of the services we need and so on. So India worried that they were about to lose this contract and and damage their uh, relationship with this friendly country started interfering in their election. Another thing that we should be uh, familiar with, usually America is on the side of the interferer. Uh, of course, we were the interferee recently. So yeah, it goes both ways. But India started basically threatening to cancel some of their contracts with Bhutan, which is exactly what the politician was threatening to do as well. But his whole idea was we need to renegotiate these contracts. We need to open up the bidding for other countries to come in and, and bid on our contracts. And India said, basically, if you elect this guy, then we will cancel the contracts and your prices will go up, you know, regular Bhutanese people, which, which is all deception. But they were able to argue if we canceled our contracts with all these subsidies that we include in them, then something that you used to pay 
The currency there is called Nultrum. So, you know, it used to cost you 500 Nultrum, which is fairly reasonable price. It's not actually that much money. So, you know, you used to pay 500 Nultrum and it's going to go up to 2,500 Nultrum. And like, you don't even need any of the details. You don't need to know what they're buying, what the contract says exactly, but you understand, oh shit. India is not only building roads for Bhutan and has these sort of agreements, but they're subsidizing things that people actually purchase. And and so the economics of what's happening in Bhutan is incredibly distorted. Uh, I, I would love to know more. I, I wish I had more details so I could speak with more authority on it. But all I'm saying is that in addition to the complications of culture as relates to public policy – there's also the issue of outside interference, basically, where it sort of appears that Bhutan is able to make agreements that they want to make with neighboring countries. But then once they're in an agreement like that, it becomes hard to extricate themselves if that's what they want to do. And so I come back to the, the proposal of banning things for the sake of the environment. First of all, they already ban things. For instance, uh, one of their goals is to become an organic country, a completely organic country uh, in, in terms of their agriculture. So obviously they have bans in place to prevent pesticides from coming in, those sorts of things. So they already have bans, but banning something within their country, is it's like one of the most powerful things they can do. They have these relationships with neighboring countries that are very beneficial, yet uh, come with some strings attached politically and otherwise. So one way to sort of rein in that relationship is to ban something in the country and say, look, like we're just not going to do plastic bags. You know, India has a huge problem with plastic bags. Bhutan could say, hey, we're just not doing it. We don't have plastic bags. We don't want them. I kind of think that they used to have a plastic bag ban. They certainly don't anymore. We were offered plastic bags, you know, more than once. Plastic water bottles is another huge thing that they need to deal with, whether it's implementing a recycling program or taking another huge step and and replacing plastic bottles with some other kind of reusable bottles, some sort of a system to uh, sterilize and, and reuse bottles for water. Uh, that, that's the direction I would love to see them go in. But that kind of culture shift is so, so, so much easier to do by implementing a ban on what you don't want and then forcing a rethinking of the system. Because when you have such limited resources as a country like theirs and these large countries often interfering in a variety of ways, there's only so many things you can do to really take a stand for yourself. And the the ways in which they are taking a stand is with bans. As I said, trying to become organic. Uh, they banned uh, logging largely so that you, you have an extremely onerous system to go through to get a permit to cut down a tree. And it's all about creating a culture of sustainability in all these different areas. So... When when I talk about Bhutan not being in favor of banning, it really was just this one guy who was giving this talk, and I don't know exactly how much power he has. I mean, he's certainly involved in, in the whole thing, and I don't know if he has a lot of people who disagree with him on that issue or not. But, of course, in a case like this, 
I have no grand conclusion for you, but those are just some more thoughts to complicate the matter. So if you have any any thoughts on this or literally anything else, I'm glad to be back doing normal shows and having these interesting conversations with listeners. I got a whole backlog uh, of voicemails to to play in the next episode or two, Uh, but keep them coming in. Of course, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making donations of any size on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. I could not appreciate your support anymore. Uh, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and helping share all of the great content that we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.